Thanks for listening to one of our Sunday messages at Crossroads Bible Church. We gather on Sunday mornings at 9.15 and 10.45 a.m. To find out more about our church or to connect with any of our ministries, visit our website at crossroadsbible.org. We hope you enjoy the message and pray it encourages you as you follow Jesus. Hi, I'm Cindy Labuda. My family and I have attended Crossroads since 1992, and I have the pleasure of reading from the New Century Version, Colossians 2, 16 through 23. So do not let anyone make rules for you about eating and drinking or about a religious feast, a new moon festival, or a Sabbath day. These things were like a shadow of what was to come. But what is true and real has come and is found in Christ. Do not let anyone disqualify you by making you humiliate yourself and worship angels. Such people enter into visions which fill them with foolish pride because of their human way of thinking. They do not hold tightly to Christ, the head. It is from him that all the parts of the body are cared for and held together. So it grows in the way God wants it to grow. Since you died with Christ and were made free from the ruling spirits of the world, why do you act as if you still belong to this world by following rules such as these? Do not handle this. Do not taste that. Do not even touch that thing. These rules refer to earthly things that are gone as soon as they are used. They are only human commands and teachings. They seem to be wise, but they are only part of a human religion. They make people pretend not to be proud and make them punish their bodies, but they do not really control the evil desires of the sinful self. Welcome to CBC this morning. Been here since 1992. How amazing is that? I'm not going to tell you where I was in 1992, second grade. I think um, <laughs> one of the things I love about the church family, we say it a lot at Crossroads, is we have a really great split across generational lines here. It's one of the things that Andy talks about loving about this church is that we have young families and we have older, wiser saints and we need each other. And, and, and part of being a family means that we do things for one another. And so that segues into next Sunday. If you haven't heard yet, we're going to do an outdoor service. Just a couple things to clarify. We are not going to go back to just outdoor services. But as we put our heads together and thought through how can we serve our body, all of us, we understand that there are some of us that, that aren't yet comfortable gathering, gathering together inside, but they would outside. And it might be easier for families if you just say, hey, there's 40 acres, run, children, you know? And so on the first of every month, the first Sunday, while the weather permits, so it's Texas, so maybe two more days, we are going to gather outside. And so what that means for us is next Sunday at 9 a.m., we're going to gather right out there in the circle. No need to sign up to show up next week, just come on out. Bring a chair or a blanket, and then if you can't make it, you can catch us on a live stream at 10 a.m. online, okay? So mark that new calendar. That's next Sunday. We're really excited about it. But today, we're diving back into our text in Colossians chapter 2, and we're going to pick up in verse 16. And, and really today, what we're talking about is, is a tension. And it's a tension between two concepts that we walk in and live in as followers of Jesus. It's the tension between contextualization versus syncretism. So, so when we talk about our faith, 
there are times that we have to not change the gospel, but change how Jesus is presented so that it makes sense to us. We have to contextualize the message of Christ. I love this definition for contextualization. It's the intentional process of communicating the historic gospel and teachings of Jesus in contemporary cultural forms. Five months ago, we went offline as a church and started, or awfully in-person stuff and started offering only online services. If you would have told that to Crossroads back in 1992, they probably would have had a difficult time doing that, you know? We have to change how we talk about Jesus, not who Jesus is, so that we fully understand in this current context the beauty of Jesus. We do it all the time. It's what we're called to do. It's what Paul does throughout his scriptures when he says, you know, you see this form and shadow in your culture. Let me tell you how that points to Jesus, because the good things about this reflect good, the good things about God. The problem is sometimes we take it too far. And, and we adapt culture too much and it co-ops the message of the gospel. That's what syncretism is. I like this definition. Syncretism is the reconciliation or fusion of differing systems of belief. So you inherently change that thing which you're trying to communicate in the first place. You're saying my culture values X, Y, and Z. And so now I'm going to make my gospel about it. I love what the French revolutionist said. He said, there go my people. I must find out where they're going so I can lead them, right? That is syncretism saying, well, they're going here, our culture values this, so Jesus has to as well. And that's a tension for Christians today. It's a tension for me as we talk about our faith, you know? And it's a conversation we're going to have. And it's one that never goes away. When I was in grad school talking about Jesus, one of the questions, we had a whole class on contextualization. And one of the questions that they asked us was, can you serve Jesus in a foreign concept, Middle East area, that's highly Islam in nature and go to a Muslim place of worship and pray to your God? Is that too far? Is that not far enough? Is that contextualization or syncretism? Because we have to, to have these conversations in that middle ground in the tension. And that's what Paul's going to speak to today. And it started in verse 8. I'm going to read verse 8 for you. He said, be careful not to allow anyone to be captivated through empty, deceitful philosophy that is according to human traditions and the elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. Because as followers of Jesus, our job is to show people right here and right now the beauty of who he is and say, hey, I'm going to use your words and your phrases to show you the unchanging truth of our gospel. And so today we're going to look at a couple places where they failed to do that in Colossians. And Paul's going to say, don't fall into these traps. And I think those traps were prevalent then, and I think they're prevalent now. But before we dive into it, we're going to spend a couple minutes, and we're just going to pray because, like we say every week at CBC, we are here not to be critics of what God is doing in this space, but to contribute to the conversation of faith because our culture is really critical. And so we want to come, and we want to say, God, what are you showing me today? Holy Spirit, how are you leading me today? How am I seeing more of Jesus today? Because I'm trying to become like him with the power of the Holy Spirit. So we're gonna take just a couple minutes and pray. I'm gonna ask that you pray for yourself if you're comfortable. And I'm gonna ask that you pray for me uh, that I do a good job this morning. So let's pray. God, I'm thankful that we could be here. I'm thankful that the message of Jesus doesn't change. I'm thankful that we can look at scriptures that were written thousands of years ago and see how it clearly applies to us today. So help us to do that in the text. Holy Spirit, I pray that you lead and guide us this morning, that you show us more of the centrality of Christ that we see throughout this book. 
I'd ask if you're comfortable that you just take a couple seconds and say a prayer that, that the Holy Spirit might lead you this morning as we walk through some scriptures. I'd ask that you say a prayer for me, that I might do a good job revealing the character of God, showing the centrality of Christ as we walk through some text in Colossians. Pray these things in the name of Jesus and all God's people said. There we are. We're going to pick it up in verse 8 like we just talked about because this is Paul's precursor to this whole section in 16 through 23. He says, I'll read it again. Be careful not to allow anyone to captivate you through an empty, deceitful philosophy that is according to human tradition and elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. And he kind of gives us his outline right there. There's two concepts that he brings up. One, he talks about human traditions. And two, he talks about elemental spirits. And so he's going to break those down for us. But human traditions are the rules we impose in religion that we think are more necessary than maybe Jesus and detracts from the centrality of Christ. That's pretty much the whole sermon. You can go home right now. Uh, Or the second one there is the elemental spirits. And just to do a little translating for you there, there's a couple different ways people interpret that phrase. Because Paul is writing to a people in a culture that we don't live in right now. And he's speaking to specific problems. In the Greek, I'm going to give you a theological word so that you can leave feeling smarter than when you went in, because that's the goal every single week, guys. There's a word, a construct in the Greek called hapex legomena. And what that means is it's times when in the scriptures, we only see that word used once in the entire New Testament. Like all language, Greek, which is what the New Testament is written in, is more clearly defined in context. And so if it's only used once in the whole New Testament writings, it's tough for us to get context. And when that happens, it usually means Paul's addressing, or whomever, a specific problem in the current culture climate context. So for example, I think there's 33 times in all of his writings that Paul uses a word that he doesn't use anywhere else or isn't found in the New Testament. About 40% of them happen in these about 18 verses, right? It's a lot of them. Paul is specifically talking to a problem here. When we talk about elemental spirits, it's an example of a current context and problem they dealt with. So just so we can get on the same page, I think... Like I said, there's different ways that that's translated, and some people say, well, it's just merely like the elements of the earth that they're falling accustomed to and for the ways their world works. It has no spiritual implication. I actually like how N.T. Wright translates this. He talks about it being the deities and powers that captivated people from wherever they were. In the first century world, you had this huge mystic hold coming from a Greek tradition of gods and goddesses. And so what happened was, as they see Jesus, they start translating in their idea of the mystical into their spiritual experience with Christ. And so what we see is a confluence, or a co-opting of the message of Jesus for the mystical teachings that they were raised in. And so what I think he's speaking to here, he's saying, whatever deity that you come from, whether it be Judaism, which we're going to get to, legalism and laws, or whether it be something a little more mystical, you don't belong to that anymore. I like how C.S. Lewis talks about the mystical, because we don't deal with it a whole lot here in our culture. We're pretty linear, prove it to me, science-based culture. Um, And and C.S. Lewis would say that if the mystical is all you think about, you're probably getting it wrong. If you never think about it, you're probably getting it wrong. There's an in-between space. It does exist. 
And so what Paul's talking about here, I think, is he's going to say, hey, your traditions and the gods that captivated you before you found Jesus have no place in swaying who you think Jesus is. And so he's going to say that don't fall in step with them because you're graduating out of that into Jesus. And here's what I think is really beautiful about this text. This was written a couple thousand years ago, and I think human tradition and the elemental spirits are the two biggest attractors from the gospel of Jesus in the last 30 years. And we're going to get into that a little bit. I think we see it play out 20 years ago with more legalistic-based pursuits of Jesus, and I think the next 20 years is probably going to be more emotionally bent towards what spirituality could be, and we're seeing that now with some younger people moving on up in the ranks. And, And why I bring that up is because this text is so true to today. It's why the writer of Ecclesiastes says, what has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. We're going to look at some of the specific examples that he gives us, whether it be Sabbath days or festivals or worshiping angels, and you're going to say, we don't do that. That's okay. That's not for us. It is for us because the philosophies that drive it still drive us today when we talk about how we pursue Christ. So let's get into it. In verse 16, he starts like this. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you with respect to food or drink or in the matter of feast, new moon, or Sabbath days. They're only a shadow of the things to come, but the reality is Christ. And we see the first heresy here. The first problem that they experience is basically it's this idea that you're not doing enough. This is legalism 101. And you got to understand the context. So when Paul talks against the Sabbath days or the dietary restrictions, those literally defined the Jewish people for millennia. We might not think it's a big deal if you have a slice of bacon or two, but to them, it's actually what defined them as a people group. The Sabbath, Saturday, was literally the sign of the Mosaic Covenant. They were a people ruled by laws, and this is the battle in the first century of uh, uh, New Testament writings for Paul. Whether you read Galatians or Romans, he's trying to divorce Judaism from legalism. He's saying, I know you think that because God gave you the laws, you're better than other people, you're not And the laws are taking away from the beauty of Jesus. And so what he's getting into in the first bit of this text is he's saying, don't judge by what people do or don't do that comes alongside of Christ's ability to save. And that word judge there isn't just don't look down on them or don't think bad thoughts of them. That word judge there is literally exclude them from the gatherings or community. Kick them out of your faith family. You guys might know my background in the church. It's a bumpy one because the church is made of people. One of my first experiences in youth group, I was, I think, 14. I was in the eighth grade. And at my youth group at the time, I wasn't very active, but they, they took this trip called Choir Tour. And you basically got to go in buses and travel to California. So I was in for the gospel. And um, it was really awful. I mean, it was great, but it was like really cheesy singing and really cheesy hand motions. And every song ended with like Jesus jazz hands. It was not the best. And I'm so glad we didn't have iPhones to video everything back then. Long story short is I was, you know, I, I liked Jesus back then. I was the chaplain of my class uh, in the eighth grade. And I hung out with some people that probably were fringe youth group kids. And I remember, because this is the day that I decided I was not going to go back to youth group, I had some senior leaders in the group that I didn't know pull me outside, and they said, hey, how many times do you read the Bible a week, and when's the last time you had a devotional? And I said, I don't, two days ago? I don't know. And they they looked at me, and they said, because you're not doing these things, um, you and your friends are coming on this trip, and because you guys are coming on this trip, God can't do what he wants to do, right? 
a couple things. I was like 5'1 and 120 pounds. So I'm just, just put that in perspective. But, but two, that's what's going on here. You're not doing X, Y, and Z so you can't be part of our community and you're limiting the development of God in our midst. So it's serious. And really what it comes down to for us today is we might not have issues with whether you attend service on a Saturday or a Sunday or a Tuesday in your pajamas, thank you, COVID. We might not have issues over that, but what we do do oftentimes is we absolutely let religious performance be a driver to how much God accepts us. How many small groups are you in? What was your attendance like in church last year? I, I refrain from telling people I'm a pastor most of the time because before COVID, the answer was always either I, this is why I really dislike the church, I'm so sorry, or I went to church a couple weeks ago, good for you, right? It's this idea that you have to prove to me that you're good enough or you've been doing well enough or that you have been accepted by, and that is antithetical to the message of grace. It's antithetical to what Jesus did. And so Paul's saying, when you talk about these things, when you talk about days of the week, and when you talk about diets, if you make that a must for faith, then you've missed the faith of Jesus in the first place. Because really, why we do those things is we're people that like control. We love control. I read an article this week uh, about, you know, the crosswalk buttons in New York City? Really anywhere, but we don't have a ton of them, the Flomo. So in New York City, there's a thousand of them. And they said that less than 100 actually do anything anymore because they have updated ways of changing traffic patterns. And they asked the question, why are they still there? And they answered so people can feel like they have some measure of control. True story, right? <laughs> and so I think that's an indicator of how much we like control, why we add things to Jesus, whether it be I'm going to check the box of small groups or church attendance, or if you go to church on Sunday morning and what you look like when you show up to church, why we do that is because we like to control our growth and development. We like to have boxes that make us feel like I know exactly how much you love Jesus. And that's hard. It's hard because when we do that, what we're saying is that I can earn or merit the favor of God. And then where does that stop if you track that out? If you feel like you can do a little thing to earn more of God, then what about the big thing? What about all these little things added up? A couple of years ago, I came across a story of, I think it was a youth pastor, but he might just have been a dude. And um, I like there's some kind of superpower in that. But he, uh, he got interviewed because he decided that he and his wife had been um, abstinent until marriage. And then they decided, this is a year and a half into their marriage, that they were going to keep that going through marriage. And at that point, I wasn't married, so it blew my mind. And I thought, um, man, why are they doing this? And literally, he said, because if God rewards abstinence before marriage, how much more will he reward it after marriage? And I thought, oh, we've missed the point of grace, <laughs> you know? Because where does it stop if we feel like we can merit any favor of God to save or to include? And when we do that, we take away from the beauty of Jesus. One commentator said, if human effort is effective, the work of God is unnecessary. Because what happens when we do that, what happens when we take days or diets, what happens is it turns into a measure of control and then it always evolves into some measure of worship. It becomes about the structures, the forms, the shadows, the rules, and not about Jesus in the first place. Because here's the tension of contextualization and syncretism here. There's nothing wrong with going to church on Sundays. There's nothing wrong if you want to live the Daniel fast life in the Old Testament. There's nothing wrong if you want to do the keto diet and eat a pound of bacon a day and pretend like that's going to do some good for you. There's nothing wrong with that. The problem is when our freedoms in Christ become forced, we worship the freedoms and not Christ anymore. 
And it makes us look like a cult too, which is kind of just a side thing there. We have to understand what Paul is talking about when he's talking about the purpose of the laws and they missed the purpose. He's saying, hey, those laws are good. Religion can be good. Rules and structure is good if pointed towards the purpose, which is Jesus in the first place. If you confuse the two, you miss it. And that's why he says the deal that he says about forms and shadows. It, it becomes that we so value the shadow that we've missed the form altogether. It's a concept we bring up again and again and again that we make good things like diets and days of the week and rest, we make those ultimate. And that's when we flip things on its head. It's been the problem from the get-go. We worship the creation and not the creator and it disrupts and upends God's good order and the result is always chaos. And so he says, don't do that. Don't let your religious liberties become your religious checkbox to I have more of God or a better experience with God because that's not the purpose of it in the first place. The problem with adding to the gospel of Jesus is it devalues our worship and his worthiness. And so Paul says, watch out for that. So sure, we don't have Sundays anymore that we value as much and we don't value diets as much, but I see it in our church. I see it growing up as a 90s youth group kid and all the boxes we had to check about how you're supposed to follow Jesus. So it's to add some stuff to the gospel. And I think the second one you see, if you look at verse 18, it's the you're not doing it the right way version of following Jesus. I'm going to read some text here. This is what he says, starting in verse 18. Let no one who delights in the false humility and the worship of angels pass judgment on you. That person goes on great lengths about what he supposedly has seen, and he's puffed up with empty notions by his fleshly mind. He's not held fast to the head from whom the whole body supported and knit together through its ligaments and sinews grows with a growth that is from God. This one's tougher for us because there's a lot of tricky words in there. It doesn't read really easily or smoothly, and you're reading it and you're saying, the humility and worship of angels have judgment on you. Nobody worships angels. Not anymore, but in the first century, what they did was, again, they highly mystical people, and, and so, <clears throat> excuse me, highly mystical people, and so what they did was they let these mystical practices filter into their following of Jesus. A couple different ways you can translate worship of angels there. Uh, a lot of commentators say it's just simply the worship of angels. So they worship things that aren't God. But then there's another half of commentators that say that phrase there in the Greek is actually a little different when it's read. I'd land on this side of it, which is that they actually try to worship like the angels worship, which means they catapult themselves into an experience that is mystical and otherworldly and visionary. And that's kind of what Paul breaks down throughout the rest of those couple verses. And they even had aesthetic practices where they would, they would starve themselves until they experienced some kind of, if you will, spiritual trip. And so he says, don't let those who delight in false humility and the worship of angels pass judgment on you. That person goes to great lengths about what he's supposedly seen, and he's puffed up on empty notions by his fleshly mind. See, what you had was a group of people that said the experience of God is the ultimate reality of God, my experience of God. That gets dangerous quick, you know? It became a heightened emotional adventure, if you will, and less based on the reality of who Jesus was. And the problem with that is it makes God fully subjective to your vision and not fully understandable and approachable to all of us. I had a friend of mine who um, follows God, followed Jesus, and kind of got into this I'm not going to call it a cult, but it was close. <laughs> he kind of got into a more extreme emotional experience of Jesus, and uh, it was really based all on visions. 
And so they would do this thing called treasure hunting, which I'm not a big fan of. And he came up to me at one point and said, hey, have you ever gone on a treasure hunt? And I said, yeah, of course. When I was a kid, awesome. And he said, a spiritual treasure hunt? And I said, no. And I said, what is that? And he said, you get together with friends and you start praying and, and somebody will see purple and somebody will see cow and somebody will see, you know, white. And you drive around until all those things make sense in one place. And that leads you eventually to the person of God. I said, okay, that's going to put my antenna right up in the air, all right? Uh, and then I was with him a little while ago and he started talking about experiencing God and experiencing God. And he said, you know, I had the best experience of God the other day. I said, what happened? He said, God half healed my left arm. I said, when has God halfway done something? Um, and, <laughs> and he kind of fell more and more into all he valued was the experience of God and not actually God himself. And that's dangerous. That's da- and we're seeing the rise of it now with a lot of neo-Pentecostal movements, um, with a lot of things going on in, in Christianity. And, and we have that tension because here's the problem with that. Here's where contextualization meets syncretism. God gave us emotion to experience him. We say it every week at CBC, our faith is not just intellectual, it's incarnational. If we're not living out our faith, experiencing the beauty of Jesus, we don't grasp the fullness of Jesus. So we can't be void of experience in our faith because God gave us those things and they are good. He gave us those things because he's a good God who likes us to experience the world. It heightens life. It adds color to despair. It helps us get through. God is good because he made food taste good. He didn't have to do that, you know? So God is a God who is experiential, but if that's the ultimate good, then we miss out on growth, essentially. And here's the problem, is in the church, we have just kind of a confession in the church. We've bought into some of this logic a little bit, you know? We've made the church like an emotional and experiential high that you can't get in the other seven days of the week. And then we say, hey, but really pursue Christ every day. We've made this your fix for Jesus all week long. And while this is good and great and it's emotional, we want to equip people to go out and live out their faith, not just to come here and get their faith for the week. There's a book called Liturgy of the Ordinary that's one of my favorite books. And the author is talking about this idea, and and I love what she says about it. She says, if we make spiritual formation all about big, fancy, mountaintop experiences, which often happen when we create them at church, We aren't giving them tools for which they can become more holy the rest of the week. We're enslaving them to get their spiritual highs from us. We become spiritual drug dealers. The only food we've been giving them is feasts, and sometimes you have to make a peanut butter sandwich, right? I love that. Because this is what was happening in Colossians. In Colossians, you had these people that, that would have visions, and then they'd say, I have more on God than you can read in your Bible. Come and get it from me come and hear what God has shown me that he hasn't showed you yet. Ultimately, what you get is a God that's inaccessible to only a few people. The access of God is limited to all people. And that's not the God of the Bible. That's not the God we follow here. That's why we open the scriptures and say, all you need to know about God is right there. I don't have any special knowledge for you. I talk about the text. I make some jokes along the way, and hopefully we see it in a different light. Yay. But you can do that too. If you ever go to a place and they say, God showed me this through my God lenses that you can't get other places run away because they're taking away from all that is needed in Christ, which is Christ. They're taking away from the centrality of the gospel. And then here's the deal. Here's why it doesn't work, because ultimately, if you're dependent upon an experience, when your experience fades, your faith will fail you. Because I think we all know it to be true. If you live your life based only on experience, that is the definition of immaturity, right? I have a two-year-old. All she knows is experiences. 
the best moments of the day and the worst moments of the day are just one little thing away. And she goes from very high to very low. And spending a day with her is amazing, but it's also reminding me that I don't want to live like that anymore because that is exhausting and immature, even though I love every minute of it. It's this tension we live in all the time. And so what, what Paul is saying is don't base your whole faith on experiences and visions because you won't grow up in the faith. And essentially, he says, that person goes on at great lengths about what he's supposedly seen. He's puffed up in his empty notions of his fleshly minds. And he says, he has not held fast to the head from whom the whole body, supported in it together, through its ligaments and sinews, grows with a growth from God. What he's saying is it's not healthy growth. And over time, you will die because the head has been cut off and you don't even realize it. It's not a lasting faith. So the other day, date night at the Ridenauer household. And so we decided that we were going to make lobster rolls. And because I'm an overachiever, I bought the live lobsters. I went to the store and picked them up with my wife and I bring them back in the car. And she said, are those alive? I said, yes, <laughs> I hope so. And um, anyway, we got them home and I'd never done this before. <laughs> and we put them in the freezer for like seven minutes because that kind of comatose is the lobster. You know, I want a, a humane death for these things. And um, I'm not going to spare some details here. So I pull them out and they're just kind of comatose. And then you take a knife and, and do the manly things of hunting and gathering from Central Market. Anyway, so... Um, I, I, I killed the lobster and pulled the tails off. My wife, who really does not like this process, walked by a little while later and then laying on the cutting board like a minute or two, and she touched one of the lobster tails. It leapt off the board, right? I thought she was going to lose it. She screamed, and my point there is a good analogy. It's saying that, look, it might look like it's doing something now, but over time, you don't know it yet. If you're cut off from Jesus and basing it on your experience, then your faith is dead and won't last. Even though it looks like it might be doing something. Paul's saying, don't let that happen because that is not healthy growth. It doesn't grow up towards Jesus. I love what he says in Ephesians. He says, instead, speaking the truth in love, we will in all things grow up into him who is the head that is Christ. From him, the whole body joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its own work. It's a principle we see in Acts chapter 5 where this Jesus movement is rising and they go to the Jewish leaders and they said, should we start killing all of them? And the Jewish leader there says, wait, if this is of God, we can't stop it anyway. And that movement of Jesus outlasted all of them. So he's saying it can't be based solely on experience and it's also not based on legalism. And so we see the third uh, kind of way that they're being torn apart from the gospel he says, you're not doing it the way it's been done before. He continues. He says, if you've died with Christ, to again, the elemental spirits of the worlds or what controlled you or ruled you before, why do you submit to them as though you lived in that same world? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch. This kind of goes back to the context of Judaism and legalism because those were permissions given in the Old Testament law. But his reasoning is a little bit different. He's saying you go back to the way it's been done before and call that good I think this is the hardest one, at least for me, because we all grow up and, and bring baggage into our faith. When, when Paul says there, um, if you have, it, it means they're literally the way it's written. It, it should be translated, since you've died to Christ, he's making the case you have died to something, so it should help you live differently. And what he's battling against here isn't necessarily that people are adding to the gospel or that they're making the gospel about their visions and dreams. What he's saying is you can't get out of the way of the way that it used to be. And that's a hard one, because I work at a church, and we killed VBS a decade ago, and that was difficult, you know? It's hard because we bring in baggage of, this is how I connected with God in the past, 
And so why won't it work in the present? Because we live in a culture that needs Jesus to be contextualized but not changed. And sometimes, sometimes, sometimes we don't realize that tradition gets in the way of us actually seeing the beauty of Jesus. So... I remember I was, in, uh, I was at Moody, I was in the choir at Moody, let's not go there, I was in the choir at Moody, and um, we were doing this tour thing through the Midwest, super exciting, and <clears throat> we got to this one church, and this is, I don't know how many, this is probably 15 years ago, and maybe 16 years ago, and um, they had a Saturday night service, and back then, guys, that was a big deal, that was like you were the cool kids on campus, if you had a Saturday night service back then, and there's this one kid that just had a really hard time. And he started talking to me about it, and he said, I can't believe they're doing this. This is terrible. I was like, why? Is it bad? Because you can't worship on Saturday night. I was like, why? Can you not worship on Saturday night? And you're laughing now, but again, if you had these conversations 20 years ago, you would have felt differently. And he said, because that's not what we've always done. We worship on Sunday mornings. And he couldn't get on board with it because he couldn't see past the blindness that his tradition instilled in him around seeing instead of the beauty of Jesus. Because here's the truth about nostalgia. Sometimes we let nostalgia get in the way of what's actually necessary, and we miss God. I think what's interesting is we think it was better the way it was before, but that's not always the case. We think it was better if I could just go back to the way it was before, but the problem is you can never experience the past like you did before because the present has influenced you, right? Two weeks ago, three weeks ago, um, my wife and child went out of town. This is the first time I've been alone in my house since... I got married, and um, my, my father-in-law had his final flight, and so they went to fly on it, and, and I love it. I think, you know, Sarah asked me, do you want to go with us? And I said, so let me get this straight. <clears throat> I can go, which I really want to, love and support, or you guys can go with my small child, and I will get an entire night alone at my house. I really want to go, but I need to work. And so... <laughs> I remember really looking forward to it. Like I, I was, the kid got a little sick leading up to it because she started daycare, and I was like, you're not going to do this to me right now. This is not happening. I planned my night. I had this thing I was going to watch. I bought this cut of meat. I was going to do all these things. It was going to be amazing. And the night starts, and it goes on. I was like, this is the way it used to be. Com- complete freedom, and I can just do what I want, when I want. Man, singleness was good. And then I, I got to that night, and it's like 8 o'clock, and then 9 o'clock, and 10 o'clock, and I was like, this is lonely. <laughs> Like, I'm in this house by myself, and, and it's not the way I remember. And it was good the way I remembered it, but at the same time, I couldn't go back to that. I can't go back to that again and experience what was because of what has been. Paul's saying, move past those things and don't simply base your idea of the gospel around what was before because you missed the beauty of Jesus in the here and now. And then he goes on. And he says, if you died with Christ, if you keep going there, why do you submit like you lived to the world? He says, these are all destined to perish with use, founded as they are in human commands and teachings, even though they have the appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship and humility achieved by unsparing treatment of the body, a wisdom with no true value. They, in reality, result in fleshly indulgence couple phrases there. One, it says they come with the reality or the appearance of wisdom. Man, I think that's so key to this whole conversation. Because one, we think it's easy to spot, and two, we think that it'll never happen to us, you know? But the slide into devaluing Jesus is oftentimes a slow one, not a quick one. And so what he's saying here is people in this church keep having these conversations, keep focusing on Jesus each and every day, because the second you don't, it starts. 
you start to not realize that you're devaluing the thing that were gathered around the reason why we're here. This context or this conversation between contextualism and syncretism is one that we have all the time as we focus on Jesus. He says that they look like wisdom, but they're of human doing. They will fade. Because at the end, he talks about what this whole thing's about. He says, you think they have wisdom, they have no true value. Instead, they result in fleshly indulgence. And in both these, they did, right? So the keeping of the law was really their prideful way to say, I'm better than you. And their, their sensory experiences was really their way of saying that you need me. It all resulted in the end, if you track it down, in pride, which is the result and, and the, the point of all of our defiance against God. They're saying it's going to only result in you being less like Jesus than you being more like Jesus, because they were trying to be like Jesus. They just got a little off track by the customs of the world that they lived in. And so he says in that moment, you know where it's going to lead you if you go down these tracks? It's going to leave you, it's going to lead you right back to yourself and you're not going to look more like Jesus like you want to. You guys hear about this flight to nowhere? Yeah? Qantas Airlines, last week, I think it was last week, two weeks ago, they announced a flight to nowhere. And you're saying, Charlie, what is a flight to nowhere? A flight to nowhere. It was anywhere from like 500 bucks to $2,000. It was a seven-hour flight where they took off from the Sydney airport they flew around and they landed in the Sydney airport, right? You laugh at that. It sold out in under 10 minutes. It was their most successful flight they've ever ran in terms of how quickly it sold out. And now it's sparked other airlines. I think Air India's doing it and Singapore Airlines, they're doing flights to nowhere. Paul's point here, Paul's point here is simply this. You think it's going to change you and do some good. You're going to get on a flight to go somewhere and you're going to land in the same place because it's based on human traditions and not the centrality of Jesus. Don't let that happen. Because all those things take away from who Jesus is. And if the point is to look more like Jesus, don't lose focus on him. It's a warning to us. It's a warning to not get bogged down in tradition. It's a warning to not get bogged down in, in different religious ordinances. It's a warning not to get bogged down in our experiences and push past that into something more substantive. It's a warning to say grow in Jesus, which means focusing only on Jesus. And here's where I want to end. You know, when we have these conversations about things of the faith and not of the faith, it's really easy for us to play detective. And you're like, man, I see this in you. <laughs> I see this over here, and that church totally does that, <laughs> you know? I can't believe them. They have their comeuppance, and it's coming now. Preach, Charlie, right? I mean, we, we have these moments where, but here's the problem. When I read the scriptures, Jesus more often says, look inside before you look outside. The challenges of following Jesus is often... Look at who you are and who you're becoming so that, that influence might spread to others. And so I love how one friend of mine I was talking about this week said, syncretism is bringing things into the place of God and contextualization is bringing God into all other places. So I guess my question today that I'm asking, because it's a conversation we're going to continue having, is where am I turning my freedoms and my way of following God and my traditions into God instead of letting those things point me towards him more? That's a question we need to keep asking. I think that's Paul's point in our text. He's saying, if you want to look more like Jesus, focus on Jesus and have constant conversations about what it looks like to bring Jesus to all the spaces of your life instead of letting the spaces in your life define the goodness of Christ himself. And so as a church community, what we get to do is we get to have conversations about what it looks like to bring Jesus to all our spaces. And we have tough conversations sometimes about places where we maybe have missed and we value other things over Christ. So it's his simple encouragement to focus on Christ, to value Christ, and to push towards being more like him because there's only one way you get there. 
It's by abiding in him uh, that we might be changed. Let me pray. God, I'm thankful. I'm thankful that Paul sits here and writes about the centrality of Jesus as we pursue spiritual formation and development. I'm thankful that you gave us an ability to follow God in different places and spaces and contexts. And I'm thankful that you've allowed other people in this conversation to check us and balance us when it is needed. I'm thankful that we can have a God that can be contextualized but not changed. May that be our heart at CBC. May that be what we do every single day as we live out the message of the gospel in all of the spaces of our life. May we see the beauty of Jesus and be changed by him and him alone because that's where true, lasting change comes from. And we pray these things in his name.